Hello, and welcome back to the Based on What podcast. I am your host, Matt Gowell, and I am joined today by the Honorable Calvin Schilling. Today, what are we talking about today, Calvin? So I've been informed that we'll be talking about Mr. John Brown. Jonathan Brown himself, indeed. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But his soul goes marching on. I've spent the, these past few uh, weeks researching, um, and we're going to be doing a new style of episode where one of us is like the expert, and we sort of uh, just, you know, I spew information at Calvin, and then we sort of discuss it. I heard that you took the SAT today, Calvin. How did yeah, that go? I did. I took the SAT. It was the school SAT thing. Apparently, Matt opted out, which I uh, was not aware of. Because I've already you. taken it, and I did well, uh, unlike uh, some of us uh, on this call. Uh, 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 what? Uh, uh, huh? Predator, up. right? So, um, yeah, you're good at taking the test that was designed by the eugenicist. Hmm? Shut <laughs> up. Uh, 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 anyway, anyway, uh, I'm feeling, as I always am after <laughs> taking the SAT, pretty, pretty tired, pretty brain dead. And of course, of course. Last time I took the SAT, it was the only time I've ever taken the SAT where I wasn't sick while taking it. And unfortunately today, uh, that was not the case. Uh, you may hear from the sound of my voice, I'm a bit congested. Uh, I ran That's into a, a bit of an Allegra shortage the other day, uh, and <laughs> I like have not yet recovered. Brown ran into a shortage of food and medicine on the Kansas frontier. <laughs> <laughs> just like that, just like that. <laughs> so, and anyway. Also, uh, one one quick thing before we get started. I know we've talked on this show before about uh, Hamilton and his revolutionary cohorts. Uh, later tonight, I will be going to Mount Vernon, uh, and I will be uh, role-playing, shall we say, as a member of George Washington's cabinet. So looking forward to that, too. Well, uh, we, will be, we will be sure to uh, update you all on the status of yes. role-playing next episode. Uh, <laughs> do you have any idea who you're playing yet, or is it still I, up I in know. the air? I'm hoping I can be, like, the ambassador of the Iroquois Confederacy, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Somehow I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, the day that this is hopefully going to be uploaded on, October 16th, is also the day that John Brown conducted his raid on Harper's Ferry, which Peace. is uh, rather fitting. Um, the title of this episode today is John Brown is an American Idol. So I have, I just would like to start with this uh, summary of his life that I wrote. Um, so, and we'll just take it from there. Um, so here we go. John Brown was born on May 9th, 1800 in Torrington, Connecticut to Owen Brown and Ruth Mills. He was the fourth of eight children, and his family was exceedingly poor. They moved often in search of a better life, and Brown was exposed at a young age to the evils of slavery. When he was 12, Brown's father had him drive a herd of cattle to Michigan to feed American troops during the War of 1812. On the way, Brown stayed with the slaveholder and watched him beat a young boy with a fireplace shovel. The experience horrified Brown and inspired him into abolitionism. Brown and his family were all devout Calvinists. Wait, Calvinist? Like Calvinist? Calvinist? Huh? <laughs> so, uh, actually, I don't know if you have anything about this in your notes. What do Calvinists actually believe? Like, what sets them apart? I don't so, know too much about Calvinism. Um, so, they are basically, I mean, I don't have anything in, in my notes, so I could mm -hmm. be slightly wrong. 
but from my understanding, they are strict um, Christians. And basically, they're just, they're very strict. Um, you know, they study scripture every day, which I will get to. But um, also, I believe there is something about um, God controlling, like, yeah, like, they're like, they're like predeterminists or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, basically, predetermined. Um, but yeah, so I, I, we could talk about that later, like how, how is really Calvinist what he did. Um, but yeah, definitely. Uh, so let me, let me get, let me continue. Um, Owen Brown taught scripture to his children and punished misbehavior with an iron fist. At 16, Brown left his family to study to become a minister. However, Brown suffered inflammation of the eyes and was forced to cease studies and return home. (laughs) How unbelievable. (laughs) Calvin at the SATs, what? Huh? (laughs) Brown eventually married Diane Blas- Blaskley, who he described as remarkably plain but tough and economical. They had seven children together, and Diane died after the seventh. Brown remarried a few years later to the daughter of his housekeeper, Mary. At the time of their marriage, she was 16 and he was 31. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mary remember that next time children, uh, someone tells you John Brown did nothing wrong. <laughs> I, I feel like that one's that's a bit questionable for the but in the time though it wouldn't have been that weird well in the time it was different and then he just wanted to have i don't think he was a pedophile i think he was like hey i want to have a lot of kids um and you are going to live for a long time and not die uh soon and so i, mean, I can have yeah, it, was, it was like consensual right i mean it was, it was like... consensual and um actually he, he sent a letter to her asking to marry asking her to marry him so I thought that was kind of funny because it's like the equivalent of out of text. Yeah. <laughs> John Brown's a simp. But yeah, um, I think it was, mo- I mean, I don't know. He could have been a pedophile. But um, I think it was mostly just because he wanted to have a lot of kids. Like he had, he has, as I'm about to say, he had 13 children with Mary. Um, so yeah. Wait, so a little, a little he had sense. seven from his previous wife? Yeah, so he had a total of twenty kids. <laughs> I think <laughs> not I think I think it was eleven of them made it to adulthood adulthood. Um some of them were killed in John's uh, raids that I will mention yeah. later. Yeah. But um yeah. I mean kind of based. Uh, not the pedophile part, the uh <laughs> the children and the raids. <laughs> just to be clear, just to be clear. Um anyway. <clears throat> When it came to raising his children, Brown took after his father. He made them study scripture every day and punished discretion uh, severely. He would give out lashings for seemingly minor offenses, such as lying. However, Brown was also a loving and tender father. Brown cared for his children deeply, and they trusted him to their death. Brown struggled to support his ever-growing family and jumped from business venture to business venture. They all ultimately failed, however, and Brown declared bankruptcy twice. He was constantly in debt and had dozens of lawsuits brought against him. Despite his apparent inability to conduct business, Brown was an incredibly hard worker. He worked hard to support his family through the challenging times and built himself up, built himself up as a pillar of the community. Eventually, so he was on that Sigma grind set, basically. <laughs> he was, though. He was. <coughs> Actually, he... Yeah, he was very based. Um, he was a leather tanner and a surveyor, and he had some like crazy business venture with wool where he bought, basically, it was sort of like a pyramid scheme. Um, but he had, like, all the farmers in the, he was, like, he, he basically said that the, the northern rich folks were ripping them off, ripping off wool price wool mm-hmm. prices, and then he had all of the farmers from the south send him their wool, 
And then he started trying to get better prices for it, but nobody would buy it because he charged like way too much. So we ended up having to go to like Germany to sell it and he sold it at a loss. Um, but yeah, he was kind of sussy when it so came it was to like, business. It was like 31 bags. He was trying to sell 31 <laughs> bags in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, for real, for real. Um, anyway, where was I? Where was I? Uh, yeah, so eventually a, a friend invited Brown to North Elba, New York, in the Adirondack Mountains. I don't know, uh, Adirondack. Yeah, Adirondack Mountains. There, he helped lead and educate a small community of former slaves. Brown fell in love with the region and longed to return there until his death. Brown was an extremely active member of the Underground Railroad, helping at least 2,500 people escape to freedom. Brown was close friends with Frederick Douglass and told him about his plan to incite a slave rebellion. Brown, Brown would set up a series of fort in the Algahani Mountains, where he would train and arm, escape, arm escaped slaves so that they could conduct raids on southern farms. Douglas loved Brown's spirit, spirit, but ultimately thought that the plan was a suicide mission. In Which, 18- I mean, he was kind of right about that one. <laughs> he was kind of spitting facts there. Yeah. Like, I mean, in 1855, after the passing of the infamous Kansas-Nebraska Act, Brown moved with his sons to Brown Station in Kansas. There, he established a heavily armed militia. Brown's company, def- Brown's company defended polling, lo- polling stations from pro-slavery medal- meddling during elections and fortified the near, nearby abolitionist town of Potawatomi against the drunken and disorderly, disorderly Missourians. They also led a guerrilla war on slave owners. Under the cover of darkness, Brown and his militia dragged slave owners from their beds and hacked them to death with swords. The attack solidified Brown's infamy at, among abolitionists and sent him into hiding. So pretty based. He, he snuck out in the night. Arguably. You you love to see it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> love to see unarmed people being hacked to death with swords. <laughs> yeah, maybe I uh, my lawyer probably would advise me to retract my uh, previous claim. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll talk about that later on. We'll Not we'll like get to year. that after yeah. this uh, after this summary. <clears throat> For the next few years, Brown traveled around in secret, gathering money to create an army of freed slaves. He would guide them through the Underground Railroad and then arm them with glaives. And I don't, I mean, a glaive is basically just like a spear with like a dagger on the end. Um, But yeah, Brown believed that arming these men established them as truly free and equal members of society. The majority of Brown's financial support came from a a web of wealthy men called the Secret Six, who financed Brown's army and bought him hundreds of weapons. Eventually, Brown grew tired of playing the long game and wanted to make serious advances toward the liberation of slaves. He decided to lead an attack on Harper's Ferry, which he hoped to use as an armory and staging ground for his army. Unfortunately, Brown struggled to gather support from the slaves on neighboring farms. They, along with many others, including Frederick Douglass, saw it it as a suicide mission. I mean, and they were right again. (laughs) On October 16, 1859, Brown led 21 men into Harper's Ferry, where they successfully captured the armory. Unfortunately for Brown, the Marine Corps was swift to react and recaptured the fort after just two days. Ultimately, Brown was hanged, but he gave some profound last words. And let me pull up this speech here. I wanted to read it to you. Um, But this is just, it's not the whole thing because it's kind of long, but this is an excerpt. So he said, I believe to have interfered as I have done, as I have always freely admitted I have done, in behalf of his despised poor, was not right, was not wrong, but right. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further 
with the blood of my children and with the blood of the millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactment, act, enactments, I submit. So let it be done. Um, so that's pretty based. Uh, yeah, pretty based. On the way to the gallows, Brown handed a guard a note reading, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. Um, and That's like the yeah. kind of thing that edgy sophomore leftists put on like, Instagram <laughs> story. I mean, I, I did that. I'm pretty sure that was like my phone background at one point. <laughs> Bro, I have a hand towel that says that in my uh, kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's the life of John Brown. Um, pretty exciting stuff. I mean, he he did some pretty cool stuff, I think. Um, but yeah, so now now I would like to open up the discussion a bit to you. Um, and we will be talking. So I mentioned earlier that we're going to talk about John Brown as an American idol. Um, mm -hmm. So just before we get started, I, I wanted to mention that there were there are a, a wide variety of cases where John Brown has been cited as like um, <clears throat> inspiring things. So there was a uh, an attack on a ice building a couple years. I don't know if mm -hmm. you heard about this, but there was an attack yeah. on an ice building yeah. a couple years ago, and somebody was throwing. I believe it was Molotov cocktails at the the like center. Um, this is in Washington and, State, right? Isn't it? Uh, I think so. I don't. I don't remember. I didn't write it down. Um, but basically, yeah, he cited he cited John Brown, and he said that that was it was what John Brown would have done if he were alive. Um, and then also there was an abortion clinic bombing where somebody, it was a very similar situation where somebody said that's what John Brown would have wanted. Um, so obviously a wide variety of cases here. He inspires a lot of people. Um, and I feel like he also inspires just, you know, everyday Americans because it's like, it's like the idea of working hard and giving all for something that you like. Believe um, in, yeah. Believe in, yeah. But um, I don't know if you have any thoughts after hearing my uh, spiel about his yeah. life and whatnot. But um, please, yeah, please. It's, it's all very interesting. I did. I definitely learned some things early. This was kind of a while ago because uh, I think this is actually the first book that I read this year. Uh, but I read a book about John Brown's trial. Um, and mm -hmm. one thing that I just thought was kind of funny in there is that he was wounded during the battle, but it wasn't particularly severe. Uh, and yep. what he would do is every morning when he was going to go to the courthouse, he would demand that the guards carry him on a stretcher because he couldn't <laughs> walk. And then once he actually got to court, then he would stand up and start yelling at the judge and he would defend himself. Uh, and he also um, said that he had the right under the law to hire his own attorney, which is true. But it was mm -hmm. a little bit different in those times because he wanted to hire a northern abolitionist lawyer. Uh, mm -hmm. And since he was in Virginia, it would have taken a little while just to get the letter up to the north. So he sent a letter to his lawyer to ask him to come down. Uh, but until then, he was defended by some Southerner guy who tried his best. But, you know, he wasn't the best. Yeah, guy. he was a Southerner. defender in the 1800s. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah, interesting man, interesting trial, interesting history. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, what do you think, based or not? Or it's late a hard or question. Late. I'm going to say generally based. There's a lot of things to consider. Um, I think he was definitely like what we consider woke for his time, uh, for well, sure. He, his he views in general. liberate the slaves, and he was like the only guy back then, you know, talking yeah. about all, talking exactly. about all that. Certainly the only white guy talking about that. Yeah, uh, exactly. And and I, from what I understand, he had pretty good relations with the Native Americans in Kansas, which is really like yeah. even people like Sherman, uh, General Sherman, who like 
woke people today will often idolize for his actions during the Civil War. You know, he mm-hmm. really was not very nice to the Native Americans. In fact, he yeah. uh, killed hundreds of thousands of them in the Indian Wars. Yeah, yep. uh, the I think that that thing about him marrying a 16-year-old is really not widely known. <laughs> I know that we had an interesting uh, conversation with one of our friends about, like, it's a common thing that people will say, John Brown did nothing wrong. Well, <laughs> except I mean, for <laughs> it, uh, if you think that marrying uh, sixteen-year-olds in your thirties is nothing wrong, well, interesting. Take. <laughs> um, I'm I'm not going to say that was necessarily bad, especially in the time and if it was consensual. Uh, but well, yeah, I mean, it's, it it was a truly a different time. Um, yeah. And what, I mean, you know, values were different back then, what people thought were normal. Who, who among us? Normal yeah. Back then. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I have, I actually completely forgot about this, but I wrote down in my bullet journal here, a couple of uh, brief anecdotes that I should like to mention as well about John Brown that didn't make it into my, uh, my speech sort of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was this one thing, he, when he was a kid, he was living out, I believe in Ohio with his family. And he uh, befriended a, a Native American boy, and the Native American boy gave him a, uh, a yellow marble, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then he ended up losing this marble, and then he apparently he mourned for years because he, the Native American boy had been one of his closest friends. Um, but so I thought this that was so sad. Story because he he was you know fairly woke from a very young age. Like I mentioned mm-hmm. in my my thing, he was he at the age of twelve he witnessed this boy being beaten with a fireplace shovel. And he, that's really what started him into being a devout, you know, abolitionist. Mm-hmm. Um, and also his father was an abolitionist too. Uh, and he agreed with Brown on most, most of everything he did, except for, you know, he was more of a pacifist than Brown. Um, yeah. But um, well, yeah, I think the religion part plays into this. We're, mm-hmm. uh, for those of you who do not know yet, we're planning on doing an episode about religion in December. But that most of the abolitionists in that time were religiously motivated. Uh, and I think that it's an interesting commentary in the modern day because most people who are politically active religiously are almost always conservative nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in those times that obviously John Brown was a very religious man um, and it was and a back of one of the things he did. Uh, and that, yeah, he would, he would like quote Bible verses about slavery and things like that. So an mm-hmm. interesting commentary in today's times. And yes, uh, I, I don't really I feel like this is kind of a hard question to answer, especially for someone who lived so long ago. But there's often the, the question of, like, you can be socially conservative and, uh, and economically conservative. Do you think that John Brown was really uh, woke? Or do you think he's like a classical liberal uh, and and he's like, oh, I just think that everyone should be equal so that we can all trade on equal ground or something like <laughs> well, that. How do you like, mean, would how John do you Brown have been an annoying libertarian in today's time, or do you think he still would have been woke now? Like, like you mean? Well, okay. So I think that John Brown was he was a very dedicated man to whatever he was working on. You know, like mm-hmm. I mentioned, very hard worker, and he didn't give up his businesses until it was clear there was no recovering. Um, so I think that if he I think really part of the reason he was such a devout abolitionist was because of the way he was raised. Like his father um, said, hey, look, these are my, my values. Uh, slavery is wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And then Brown sort of accepted that and then grew up with that idea and became obsessed with it. And he hated slavery. So I feel like it would sort of depend on how he was raised and what his situation would be in the modern time. You know, like mm-hmm. he could be he could be he's the type of guy that could be raised to be a conservative and then be 
super conservative his entire life and be completely dedicated to it. Or he could be raised a communist and then, you know, I don't know, attack the IRS or something. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like it, it would really depend um, because he, the issues of today are completely different. Like, I think it's fairly obvious that the Bible now does not condone um, slavery. I mean, they have the whole thing about, you know, the, the, uh, the Jews and everything in e- uh, Egypt and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I feel like nowadays it's sort of harder because the issues aren't as like directly related. Yeah. Uh, they're not as clear cut. Yeah. Um, so I think it really would have just depended on the situation. And I think that he could have gone a number of different ways, but uh, the point is that he would have been super dedicated to whatever. He would have been like a radical, you know, mm-hmm. because that's what he was back then. And I feel like that's what he would be now. Um, but so, yeah. 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 So would John Brown have attacked the ice center in Tacoma, Washington with Willem Vance Bronson? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We got to ask uh, Willem. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> At a good point. But, but um, yeah. So, I mean, John Brown, so, so that case, the, the ice detention center attack, um, yeah. I was like ultra aware of that. Uh, in in oh, that I time, <laughs> when I first learned about John Brown, like I was like, wow, that this guy is so cool. I was like obsessed yeah. with him. Uh, mm-hmm. And and then, so Willem Vance Bronson, who was the one who perpetrated the ice attack, um, he wrote like a whole manifesto before he went. Um, he was part of an organization in Olympia, Washington called the John Brown Gun Club. And I think oh. we can we can also talk about like gun culture in relation to John Brown. Yeah, but definitely. Basically, it was it's like sort of a left wing uh, gun organization. Um, and he became so disillusioned with the way immigration works in the United States. And he felt that uh, the way in the conditions of the detention center and the way the ICE was run, that it would have been in the legacy of John Brown to, you know, try to try to free the yeah. being held there. Yeah. Um, he was unsuccessful. Uh, from what I understand, he lit a few vehicles on fire. Um, he was carrying a, a gun with him, but he did not use it during the attack. Uh, and mm-hmm. he was shot by the police uh, in Washington state and he died. Um, mm-hmm. And the, uh, I, I've, started to change my views a lot i know when i first heard about this i was like based based uh, <laughs> and and you know edgy edgy teenager yeah edgy um, i imagine myself doing the same thing um <laughs> i'm not sure that i would imagine myself doing that now but uh the i feel like there's also an element to it in in that case and even in john brown's case that i've heard this said i think i, I i'm gonna misquote this someone said that he was like the first person to have a big white savior complex. I think that was Booker T. Washington, but don't quote mm-hmm. me on that. Uh, and that, you know, like he tried to go start the slave revolt, but the slaves didn't join him. So it was just, it was him and his, uh, and his, his friends, parents. some of whom were white and some of whom were not, um, yeah. attempting to, to start a revolt that he hoped would end slavery in the entire United States and just resulted in him and his associates dying. So mm-hmm. do you think that John Brown was really like a true revolutionary or is he just like a guilty white guy who was like compensating and, and really, he was like the edgy white leftist of the modern day, but in the 1800s. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you mean like, you mean like, was he, hmm. I don't, like, I do, don't know. Do you think that he was <laughs> genuinely motivated or do you think that he was mostly doing it to like, 
sort of be oh, oh like be like seen as like progressive yeah, yeah yeah i know what you mean well i think i think he was genuine because i mean the man gave his life for the cause he hacked true. people to death with his sword that's um, also true and he was he was very obsessed with all this um and i think a big uh not to go on a, off on a tangent but a big a big factor behind all of this was his religion and this idea he was he taught his children to fear god and he was very you know, insistent of all of this. And I don't think that he was just doing this. It wasn't like a vanity thing. It wasn't to make himself look better. He mm-hmm. really, truly believed that this is what God would want. And that's why he was so obsessive about it because he wanted to please God. And I guess also probably on a moral level, he obviously thought slavery was wrong himself. It wasn't all just to please God. Um, but I think he definitely was genuine about it. And I think if you read if you read this book that I strongly recommend, the book that I read is called To Purge This Land with Blood by mm-hmm. uh, Seth B. Oates. Um, but they, they mention a couple of stories in it that, that sort of uh, highlight this to me. And uh, so there was, there was this one where he was, he was in church um, and it was like an abolitionist church, but John Brown was still the wokest guy there, you know, um, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and so I, basically... All of the, the black people would sit in the back of the church and then all the white people would sit up front. So John Brown, <laughs> John Brown made a big show of all this. Uh, he got up and he said, I, I don't don't quote me on this, but I think he said, um, I don't remember what he said. But basically, he gave up his yes. seat um, and went and switched with a black family and had them go up to his front row pew. Mm-hmm. Um Which, I mean, arguably, you could say that's the whole trying to act woke thing. Yeah. But I think he... Because he was so devout in his faith, I can't imagine that he, it was all for vanity, um, <laughs> if that makes sense. John Brown getting that Twitter clout in church. <laughs> yeah, He'd yeah, probably yeah, have a lot of Twitter clout nowadays if yeah, he were alive. Uh, yeah, you know? an, an interesting take. And, and yeah, he wasn't, like, he wasn't just writing newspaper articles. He was actually doing stuff, which is he was uh, doing a stuff. pretty yeah, valid he was, point. He was dedicated. So, and, and yeah, so let's, let's talk a little bit about his time in, in Kansas. Um, yes. So... Uh, he was known. There is a period called Bloody Kansas, and John Brown yep. was one of the biggest figures in that. Uh, mm-hmm. I I know that you told the story about how so he would hack uh, slave owners and slavery supporters to death in their homes yep. with swords. Yeah. Um, I think that it is uh, sometimes pretty easy for us to say based because you know, <laughs> they're, they're slave owners, so it's kind of yeah, yeah. too much sympathy for them. Um, but the so uh, I would need to to look this up again. Um, but were all the people that he attacked in Kansas slave owners or were they slavery supporters? Like, did so they actively he, own slaves or were they just along for the ride? You know, like well, random no, the conservatives. People, the people he hacked to death. Um, there were five of them. They were all slave uh-huh. owners, and he basically. I don't believe he did anything to their families. Um, I think it was just like the, the men of the family. He would go to their house at night and then he and his supporters would drag them out of, uh, like into the fields and then kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, they were all sl- slave owners. Okay. And, and yeah, that's sort of the question to be asked. And this is obviously a very wide ranging uh, topic, uh, especially in regards to things like, you know, if there were to be some sort of revolution, uh, what do you do with the people who are slave owners or capitalists or reactionaries or whatever? Because mm. um, 
obviously I would like to believe that people are not just inherently racist or inherently slave owners uh, and that, you know, they could be, uh, they could see reason or, or be convinced otherwise. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you just like hack people you disagree with to death, you're not (laughs) making any friends there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And, and obviously I'm not going to defend slave owners, but I think that uh, in the wider context of the Civil War and of John Brown's actions, that there were plenty of people involved, especially in the Confederate Army, who did not own slaves. And mm-hmm. they were obviously fighting for that right to own slaves. But I think that's one of the greatest myths of American capitalism is the idea that, oh, well, if you support the Confederacy, then maybe one day your plantation will be big enough that you can stop being a peasant farmer and you can own slaves of your own. Mm-hmm. And that's why so many of them were, were convinced. Yeah. And in bloody Kansas, a lot of those people were not slave owners because, you know, slave owners are relatively yeah. wealthy. They're yeah. managing their plantation. They're and well, a go lot of Kansas them and be fighting John Brown. So yeah. it was it really the best decision for him. Obviously, it was it was his religious motivations and his devotion mm-hmm. to the cause. But there were other abolitionists at the time who were trying to convince slave owners and more importantly, non-slave owners who supported slavery yeah. to change their minds. And do you think that John Brown could better have influenced society by doing that instead of, you know, killing people? Well, I think that was John Brown's original take. He wanted to be, he was, you know, he talked to Frederick, Frederick uh, Douglass and he wanted to be sort of, he didn't want to be too violent about it. He wanted to try to convince people, you know, he would give, um, I'm not sure what you call them in Calvin, but you know, like homilies, I don't know what you call them in Calvin, Calvinism, but he, he basically would preach and try to say, Hey, look, slavery is bad. Here's where it is in the Bible. Um, and originally he did try to convince people, but I think as his life went on, he really, tr- he started to see how evil slavery really was. Mm-hmm. And he sort of became disillusioned with the idea that you could easily just convince people because it's, it's difficult. Like these they were just as devout as he was about owning slaves. Like, and John Brown couldn't have been convinced to be a slave owner. It never would have happened. Um, so you probably couldn't have convinced them either. He probably, exactly. I don't think there would have been any convincing on either side. And John Brown sort of put it best when he said the whole thing about um, the crimes of this guilty land can be Yeah, the crimes of this guilty blood. land will never be purged away but with blood. Um, that, yeah. that really sums up what he believed. And I, I'm not sure, I haven't thought about this enough to say whether he was right or wrong. Um, but I mean, ultimately, the reason slavery ended was because of the Civil War, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, so it's it sort of... have to be purged away with blood. I mean, it was. So, I, mean, I don't know yeah, if it necessarily had to be. He was at least literally right about that part. That, you know, yeah. That, that I mean, but there's no telling what could have happened. Right. I mean, it could have... You There might have been some way to do it uh, peacefully, peacefully and, you know, uh, through... What's the word? Like, Non-violence. democratically... Oh, nonviolent yeah. reform yeah. something something mm-hmm. yeah some um, or other and, and i feel like in some ways that even relates back to the ice attack uh, so so then the question is john brown uh it's pretty easy for us to sit here armchair civil war general if you will <laughs> uh, yeah say, you know john brown based respect what he did <laughs> he, he I, I, in many ways he started the civil war because the did. harper's ferry um was a big motivator for the Confederacy in the South to believe that they were under attack and that they had mm-hmm. to, to respond. So mm-hmm. really raid on Harper's Ferry didn't happen. Probably the civil war would not have happened as soon anyway. Um, yeah. And you sort of, it begs the question that John Brown, you know, he started the civil war. 
And then in that way, arguably ended slavery, even though it was after his death and after his failed yeah. attack. Uh, yeah. Then the question is the crimes of this guilty land, you know, crimes like detaining illegal immigrants in detention centers and inhumane conditions mm-hmm. or crimes like our prison system or things like that. Can mm-hmm. those be uh, purged away uh, without blood? Or, or do we have to sort of say, I mean, like, yeah, John Brown, we can say that what he did was good, but that was 200 years ago. So are we willing yeah. to, to do the violent things that he did? Are we able to justify mm-hmm. that in our own time? I yeah. think that's a little bit harder. Well, I think we say, certainly... I'm not going to say that I don't or that I do, but I, I just think it's, it's sometimes a lot harder to see in the modern day the necessity yeah. of, of revolution or of violence or mm-hmm. of serious change, even when you can see it looking back. Yeah. And well, okay, so I think we very much live in a different time now, um, obviously. But I, but back back then, the main issue was slavery. Like everybody mm-hmm. had an opinion on slavery. It was something that everybody talked about. Um, but but now I feel like it's sort of more more complicated than that. Or it, at least there are it, there's no main one issue. You know, like mm-hmm. people are passionate about different things. So I think I think it's it's not possible for us to. It's a different situation. You can't just have people revolt against all these different ideas because there are so many different things people are upset about. And the best way to fix that is through reform, um, at least I believe. Uh, and also, I don't really want to, you know, have Molotov cocktails thrown at me. I don't want to be hacked to death. I don't want to hack slave owners to death. Um, but, you know, I don't want to hack people to death generally. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it's, it's um, very much a different time. And there is there is. It's, I, yeah, it's a different time is what I'll say. <clears throat> so we may uh, yet do a gun control episode on here. I don't know when mm-hmm. that will be or if we will do it at all. If it'll but happen, yeah. John Brown is, is kind of an important figure in American firearms history, if you will. Um, I know that there's an anecdote that uh, the rifle he used, which I think was like the Beecher rifle, that they would call the mm-hmm. Beecher's Bible because they were so important to John Brown, and he would ship yeah. them into Kansas in boxes that were labeled Bibles because he was a preacher, yep. and then that was how he would get them into the territory. Yeah. Um, so, and John Brown obviously had no problem with arms. He believed that arming the slaves and the arming his men was very important to mm-hmm. freedom. I think there was that one quote about how he said that they will not truly be free until they have the means to yeah. defend themselves. Yeah. Um, kind of sounds like a, like a two, a second amendment guy now, like Stephen Crowder yeah. or something, except, you know, more <laughs> woke. Um, yeah. So, so then I feel like that's also relevant in the modern times so that that has been sort of a change over the past year, uh, year or so um, of that. Now more people are getting into owning firearms other than mm-hmm. just white people, which is kind of what it was for a while. Uh, yep. And I feel like John Brown's legacy on that is kind of important. And I also mentioned that the guy who did the attack on the ICE detention center, that there is a John Brown gun club system around the United yeah. States yeah. Uh, where progressive people will join a firearms community. Uh, and and how do you think that John Brown's relationship with weapons and firearms still sort of affects us? And, and do you think that it is for the better or for the worse that that political well, violence in our country was kind of normalized by John Brown in a lot of ways. I think so. I think you sort of said it. You said it yourself. His opinion was very much that um, that a man a man cannot truly be free until he has a weapon, which is why he spent all the money to arm the uh, the freed slaves and whatnot. Um, but I I think that he 
I, I mean, the arguments that people use today about guns are sort of similar to the ones used back then. Like, I mean, if you, if you're talking to somebody on the left or on the right and you talk about, um, weapons, if, if they're far enough on the left and they'll say, yeah, you can't be free or defend yourself unless everybody could have a gun. Right. And people on the right will say the same thing. So I think, I think John Brown's whole, uh, thing about guns has found its way pretty deeply into our society. Um, and it's, it's, it's a fairly widespread belief that gun ownership makes a man almost, or like uh, it makes you free, you know, if you're picking up what I'm laying yeah. down. Um, but I think John Brown sort of was a very influential figure and I'll, I'd like to get into this more later. Um, but he definitely inspired a lot of the ideas we have now. Um, and many people look up to the things he did. And so I think a lot of his ideas, including the stuff about gun control, are widespread in society today and are popular in society today because of who he was and how he was, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess, okay, so not to derail the conversation or anything, but um, I, I would like to talk about this idea that I keep bringing up of John Brown as an idol. Um, yeah. So there, I, I have it in my notes here um, that, yeah, so... <clears throat> I think there are plenty of American idols when you think about it. Most of them are probably like, uh, you know, Hamilton or Washington or Jefferson. Um, and I think the thing with them is that you can relatively easily separate their good deeds from their bad ones. Like, mm-hmm. for example, the big thing about Hamilton was that he was a really hard worker and he set up the whole government and the Federalist Papers and everything. Um, they made a really bad musical. <laughs> but they made a really bad play. <laughs> well, but... He, he cheated on his wife, right? And that's something that most people think is bad. And then you have Washington, who is generally considered to be a, a great leader. Um, a fellow. A I mean, he was fellow. pretty honest, you know. One time he cut down a cherry tree. <laughs> the cherry a tree thing. <laughs> but um, he, was, he, was a, uh, he was a rich guy, and he owned slaves as well. Uh, he killed people during the revolution. Um, and then Jefferson is, I have here that he's a good businessman, among other things. But he also <laughs> as if such a thing were possible. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the the point being that many of these people you can easily separate their good deeds from their bad ones, right? Mm-hmm. But with John Brown, it's it's more difficult because yeah. the things that he did that were that could be considered good could also be considered bad because he was killing people and using violence. So it's sort of harder to call him an American Idol um, right out of the gate. But I feel like, as I mentioned earlier. Many people look up to him, and many of his ideas are sort of foundational in our society now. Um, at least the ideas that he talked about, they weren't necessarily his. Um, but I, so, um, yeah, the main thing that makes him controversial, and the main reason he isn't up there with Washington and Jefferson, is because he used violence. And I think it's, it's, it's hard to uh, commit to somebody who hacks people to death with, you know, swords yeah. um, and, and support them. Um, but yeah, so I guess the main question would be, is using violence okay? Like, what, what do you think? Do you think it's justified to use violence if you're fighting slave owners or, um, some, yeah. some cause? Uh, I mean, obviously it's not a question that's easily resolved because I feel like, um, it, he had contact with people like Harriet Tubman and Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass, uh, and that even going forward into the civil rights era, I mean, there's, there's the conflict after him of W.E.B. Du Bois and, uh, Booker T. Mm-hmm. Washington. W. Mm-hmm. Uh, even wrote a, a biography about John Brown that I hope to read someday. 
And then there's the conflict between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Uh, and, and sort of that question of can, I, I feel like that John Brown quote is, is very good and very relevant of can the crimes of, of the United States be purged through peace or can they only be purged through violence? And mm-hmm. I feel like it's not really an easy thing to answer. And for John Brown as a legacy figure, I was just thinking about this because I, I picked up a copy of Stars and Stripes commissary last time I was there and one of the <laughs> As you do. in there was about uh, the renaming of all the army bases uh, and uh-huh. there's a big big thing right now of uh, should the monuments to these people be removed to people like Jefferson and George Washington uh, and and mm-hmm. also for the army bases a lot of them are named after confederate generals um, and I feel like there's a lot of interesting takes that can be had on this um, mm-hmm. because obviously for army bases if they're named after Confederate generals, those are people who actively fought against the yeah. United States Army. Um, mm-hmm. but, Why isn't there uh, a Brown Army base? It, yeah, and, and then there's also the thing um, that a lot of these bases, many people are not aware that they're named after Confederates. And in some ways, they have different historical associations. Because the one that just comes mm-hmm. to mind for me is uh, places like, you know, Fort Bragg uh, and, yeah. uh, and, and Fort Lee. Fort Rucker, mm-hmm. those places, you don't even think about the person behind them. You mostly think about the things that have happened Just there. The name, yeah. The modern art. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I know, so I'm, I'm just like looking at this article because there's some things in here that I think are relevant. Fort wow. Bragg is named after Confederate General Braxton Bragg. And mm-hmm. some people have suggested that they name it after General Edward Bragg, who is in the Union Army, and then they wouldn't have to change the name. Um, Easy. Uh, there's also obviously a lot of things on here that people have uh, wanted to name them after, you know, women, people of color, uh, mm-hmm. people who are more relevant to a progressive history of the U.S. Army, um, mm-hmm. which I feel like is in some ways getting into like the LGBT drone pilot. Kind of thing. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and and I seriously doubt there will ever be a Fort John Brown in the United States. <laughs> But man, the thing is, it's you sort of hit it on the head of that the things he did, good and bad, are not so cut and dry as these mm-hmm. other people. Because if we build a monument to him or name a, a, something after him or something like that, then the question is, what is the impact of that in the modern United States? And mm-hmm. that you can say that it's there are flaws with idolizing John Brown. Um, I mean, first. First of all, the fact that he married a 16-year-old uh, is a bit questionable. Yeah. Um, hacking people to death is a bit questionable. <laughs> uh, and But you can also say, you know, George Washington wasn't even questionable. Like, he just did own slaves, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is in many ways worse. You can say, well, you shouldn't have hacked those slave owners to death. You should have tried to talk to them. But yeah. George Washington literally owned human beings. And we still don't seem to have a problem idolizing him. Yeah. Uh, and I think John Brown, in a lot of ways, uh, is a signal to people that, you know, in school, you might hear about John Brown once or twice, but he's not yeah. a super well-known figure. And he sort of represents that idea that, you know, even in those times, there were people who were progressive, who resisted the systems of oppression. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't know about that. And that if you can know of John Brown and idolize him, then that's sort of a symbol of hope in a lot of ways that back yeah. then there were people resisting slavery. Now there are people who are resisting the systems of oppression that we have now. It's just mm-hmm. John Brown in those times 
He was called a terrorist. He was called all these bad things. He murdered people. Uh, mm-hmm. And people don't really want to hear about someone doing that now. They just want to hear about someone doing it in the past. Yeah. And it's kind of yeah. hard to say for sure whether idolizing him is a good thing. Uh, I mm-hmm. think that it's something even Rick Roderick talked about this in, <gasps> in his lecture about how Martin Luther King um, was opposed by capital, by the government during his lifetime, uh, even though he was nonviolent because he wanted to challenge segregation. He wanted to challenge racism. But after yeah. his death, he was very much embraced by capital and by the government. Mm-hmm. And they have a, na- a day named after him. We have paintings of him in our school. And, and it's John Brown Day. Come on. Yeah. And, and, and the reason is because he was nonviolent. So you're gonna yeah. you're gonna hear, you know, be like Martin Luther King Jr. Oh. He never did anything violent. So if you want to protest, be like him because you won't disrupt the way things are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and John Brown, you know, and and people like him, you're not gonna hear about as much just because you might start to get dangerous ideas. So yeah. I feel like it's it's kind of a difficult question. Um, and yeah. even I am not sure if Definitely. I am willing to say. I idolized John Brown. I know that at one point in my life, mm-hmm. I definitely did. Uh, and I, but and it's I not wanted to be like anymore. him. But I think that once you sort of get older and you start to think about it a little bit more, it is kind of hard to say, well, you know, the yeah. only way he could have done that is by hacking people to death with <laughs> Like that's, that is, It takes a lot of courage to do that. And it also, you have to completely dehumanize that person, say there's no way that this person can be helped there's yeah. no way that they can change their mind. And for the people to be free, they have to die. And yeah. you sort of have to ask yourself, is that true of people now? Is that true of racist people now or rich people now? Can they truly not be convinced? I feel like the jury is still out on that one. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's a little bit harder once you're more mature to say that it's that so, kind yeah, of dry. It's, and it's, it's not any way. Dry, yeah, exactly. yeah. And I mean... I, I think it's sort of so. Okay, I have a brief anecdote. I was telling somebody about the uh, this episode the other day, and I was talking to them, and um, I mentioned that it was about John Brown, and we're going to talk about whether or not he was an American Idol, and um, if what he did was appropriate, you know, violence. Um, and this person said that it was. He, he was like, "What? What are you talking about? Of course, it was good. He he was doing it for slavery." Um, and so I just thought that was sort of interesting because you can look at this a couple different ways. It's like. Do the ends justify the means? You can say, yeah, uh-huh. he was fighting slavery, so there was nothing wrong with it. Or you could say, yeah, he was fighting slavery, but he was hacking people to death with swords and leading raids on United States military bases. Um, it, it's sort of, it depends on what kind of person you are, almost, because I feel like it's, 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 it's really, it's not an easy question. I mean, obviously, like we're talking about, um, but I just thought that was sort of interesting to bring up, is that um, some people are very determined in, or they, they are very certain in how they feel about this, and they don't even give it a second thought. Um, but yeah. <laughs> well, and, and also with the ends justify the means thing, that the raid on Harper's Ferry was not successful. All of his men were killed eventually. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. I think some of them may have escaped or gone to prison, but yeah, no, some of them they escaped. did not start the slavery revolt. There are other rebellions, like the one in Louisiana, the Stono Rebellion, the Nat Turner's Rebellion. And Mm -hmm. that when you sort of look back, um, it is especially easy in those cases to point out the bad things that those people did 
because especially like Nat Turner. Nat Turner killed a lot of people. He was merciless. Yes, men, women, and children. He killed children. Um, yeah, but baby. you know he was he was fighting for his freedom. So in some ways that does justify it. And I feel like had John Brown been successful, if there had been massive slave uprisings. And that was how slavery ended. There was no civil war. He just liberated all the slaves because of that one raid. Then mm-hmm. our view of him would be very different. But because mm-hmm. it was an unsuccessful attack that did not immediately end slavery, and then it led to the bloodiest war in American history, mm-hmm. that it's a, it's a, a more complex in that way. Yeah. And I think it's also worth pointing out that John Brown hoped to um, – he was basically trying to start a civil war um, when he did the raid on Harper's Ferry because his whole mm-hmm. plan was to establish an army of freed slaves and arm them at Harper's Ferry and stage everything from Harper's Ferry. That's why he was attacking it because there were, you know, I can't it remember the exact location. Yeah. It was a strategic location and I think there were thousands of, of weapons there. Um, so his whole plan was to start an armed conflict. He, was, he tried to start a war. That's what he was trying to do. Um, so I think that, that, I don't know if that changes anybody, if that could affect anybody's perspective on it. Um, but I think he was very much aware, uh, that, that a war would have to happen, or at least he believed that a war would have to happen, obviously with his whole purge the land with blood thing. Um, but he, he didn't want, he, he was a firm believer that there was no one and done. It wasn't just, we attack this one base and then slavery is over. You know, he, he was playing the long game. And, and to sort of link it to the modern day again, that there are people now, uh, tankies mainly, uh, who believe that the only way for America or the West or whatever you want to say, the developed world, to truly change would be if there was another civil war or a revolution. Mm-hmm. And that those people generally now, you want to say something like a civil war in America would be bad when the Capitol revolt mm-hmm. uh, was happening and they were storming the building that, you know, a lot of people, mostly like liberals were like, Oh no, this is so bad. This could lead mm-hmm. to another civil war, uh, yeah. which would obviously have terrible human cost. Ob- wars are bad. People would suffer. Uh, but the question is, can you achieve true change through peaceful measures? And I wanted to bring up a conversation that I had in my African-American history class involving mm-hmm. uh, someone who you know and love. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, I will not name him for his privacy, yeah. but you know who I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> and, and basically, this fellow in my class, uh, he, he's a pretty hardline leftist, uh, and, and he was basically uh, desecrating the name of Martin Luther King Jr. And he was saying, <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing about Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, all, he didn't do anything, and, and he was such a loser. And blah, 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 violence is the only way that true social change has, cha- has been achieved. That's basically what he said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had just been thinking about this a couple of days before. Mr. Miller was talking about it too. And the three of us, lunch started, and we were all just hanging out talking about this. Uh, and from my understanding, Warren never actually ate lunch or allowed Mr. Miller to eat his lunch because he was just harassing him in the hallway. <laughs> uh, but what, my, my take is this, is that... Um, you can, you need to have both in a lot of ways if you want to have the most effective way of having social change. Because mm-hmm. if you look at a lot of the, the big historical movements, uh, there is Martin Luther King Jr. and his nonviolence and his mass liberal movement. And then there is the more militant end of that. Uh, really, Malcolm X 
is a questionable figure in a lot of, a lot of ways uh, mm-hmm. because of his association with the Nation of Islam and also his association with the American Nazi Party, which is something <laughs> I don't know about. Uh, but people like the Black Panthers and Huey Newton, who were willing to uh, use violence and, and not even necessarily violence, but the idea of self-defense and being armed and being dangerous and, and not just being willing to take whatever punishment the state is going to give you that you're going to resist. And yeah. that, that was in many ways a great tool that Martin Luther King Jr. had because when he was talking to the government, uh, even though they didn't like him, that he always had like the carrot and the stick of yeah. if you desegregate, then we will achieve a great victory for our cause. But if you don't, then these people, the Black Panthers, the violent people, Malcolm X, are not going to tolerate that. So do you want yeah. to reform and to do things the easy way? Or do you want things to get bloody because you didn't concede? And there are really a lot of examples of this. Uh, like mm-hmm. the, I, in, in the Troubles, there was the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. And there was yeah. also a political party. The, the Irish Labor Party was Sinn Féin. And that Sinn Féin was campaigning for a lot of the same things through the political field and that they had elected yeah. politicians. And mm-hmm. it was a, a similar situation that they could negotiate with the government for their concerns. But if the government wasn't willing to talk to them, then there were terrorists who were willing to do things their way. And I think that it, yeah. it applies back then and it applies now that sometimes you need to have that dichotomy. You need to have a Hegelian dialectic of the violence. And, the <laughs> and if you have both of those things, then you can put a lot of pressure on the people in power to get yeah. the change that you want. The question is Definitely. who's willing to be nonviolent and who's willing to be violent because if you, it, both of them are dangerous in their own way. Obviously, if you're violent, then you know you could die like John Brown did. And <laughs> if you're nonviolent, then you could be forced to walk nonviolently through a town while the police beat you and sick dogs <laughs> and so on, which is also really not a great experience. Yeah, because you're not going to do anything to fight back by definition. Oh. So, so it's it's a difficult situation, but that's sort of where I'm at right now. Uh, I I think that the best way is you kind of need to have both. Yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely, um, and I I definitely agree with you. Uh, and I I just would like to bring something up that is it's tangentially related. Um, but this is so you mentioned Rick Roderick, and I just remembered this. But um, there was an episode of, or one of his lectures I listened to. I think it might have been on Foucault. I don't know. But he talked about people idolizing um, criminals, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the idea that, that we respect, you know, old Western cowboys and stuff, even though they were breaking the law and killing people and doing stuff that was even morally wrong. Um, and so I think it's, it's sort of exciting because you're like, hey, look, this person doesn't He's not going to stop at what's legal. He's going to do what he wants and what he believes in. Yeah, he does. And so I think that's exactly, and that's that's what inspires people to support, you know, John Brown, Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, um, because they they are dedicated and they're determined and they're willing to use violence. They they follow the spirit of the law, not the letter. Um, They they're yeah, exactly. That's that's what inspires people to to, uh, sort of idolize these people. And I think that's very much the case with John Brown. Is he? He may have been. I mean, he was a criminal because he killed people. Uh, they they arrested him in the end, obviously, and uh, hanged him. 
but that's that's sort of that makes him more exciting right because he was so dedicated he was willing to die for his cause and people respect that because they're like hey look this guy he's he's a hero basically um but yeah i mean and and i feel like there's an element of the anger also if you are someone who has grown up in the modern liberal world the post cold war society uh and and also reading about conventional histories of slavery times there's this view that oh there were the slave owners in the south and then there were the republican politicians in the north and that they mm-hmm. basically wanted to they wanted to contain slavery they wanted to stop importation they wanted to do this and that but they basically did everything except you know violently stop the slave owners and yeah. Kansas Nebraska is a whole historical period we don't need to get too much into it but mm-hmm. John Brown is a way if you're looking back historically or for thinking about things in the present day that you can say, well, John Brown did something about it, that you can idolize yeah. him even despite his faults because he did what no one else did and, and he was willing to channel his anger and, and the view of him also just with the swords and with the guns and with his Bibles and that he was such a devoted man politically, religiously, and he believed in all this stuff and that it's, they could make a movie about him. I'm pretty sure they made a show about him that was pretty good. They did. There is a um, show about him. But, but, you know, he's like such a – he's a larger-than-life figure. Uh, and I feel like yeah. that plays into his – the ability to idolize him. It's just because he's like so big and so powerful and, and intimidating. Yeah. And that, that whole period of bloody Kansas, that that's something that is not well-known. But I think that that's really one of the more interesting periods in American history is the idea yeah. that even here in the United States – before the Civil War, that there was great political violence over something like slavery, and that there were people on the other side of that who were fighting to free the slaves through violent force on the frontier. Yeah. That's just such a such an interesting historical concept that is not covered nearly enough in our education system. Definitely. Um, and, well, I think um, I would like to start bringing things to a close here because I have to do some stuff this afternoon. Yep. And this is already quite a long episode. Um, but yeah, I guess just uh, some closing remarks. It, <clears throat> I guess it is ultimately John Brown was, he was willing to use any means necessary. And that is what makes a lot of people, I mean, as we discussed, as you just said, a lo- it's a lot of people idolized him because of that. And because he was, he was, he was willing to do what he needed to do to get stuff done. Um, whether or not that is a correct interpretation of events is is still up in the air for me. Um, you know, the whole using violence thing, hacking people to death, it's 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 a big debate. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you all for listening. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts and hopefully on Spotify soon. We were also planning on starting a YouTube channel and you would be able to get the podcast there as well. We now have a podcast Instagram. It's at podcast based on what, and we will be planning on posting some stuff there, some reels, some pictures, and also just letting you know when we're recording or posting a new episode. So if you want to follow the show, you can go on there. And again, thank you all very much for listening. Uh, One other thing that I would just like to add is that if you would like to have music on the show or a podcast cover or cover art for the show, Uh, please submit any designs. We would be very happy to see anything that you have to offer. We're looking for a cover art in particular for Apple Podcasts. 
uh, and anything that you could uh, put out, we'd be happy to see and, and maybe put in the show. So thank you all for listening and have a nice day.